I don't think too much about trying to mitigate injury to my body when I'm in those situations because I think just by spending so much time outside over the past decade, I've kind of learned how to maneuver very skillfully outside and how to just be conscious and to be aware at all times. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to part two of our conversation with Adam Harriton. In part one, we covered extensively his tree course, its importance, and how he built it. In this conversation, we get a little bit more into how Adam decides what to work on, a very interesting story of getting lost in a bog, and a whole lot more. I learn something every time I talk with Adam and leave each conversation inspired. I am confident that you are going to do the same by the end of this one. Here is the rest of our conversation with Adam Harriton. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So what can you tell us about walking into a bog to identify a tree? It could be a very lonely experience. It could be the most thrilling experience. It could be both of those at the same exact time. I love bogs. Anybody who's really into like botany, maybe not necessarily trees, but botany, and maybe mycology to some degree, We'll tell you that bogs are just incredible places. Now, here in Pennsylvania, bogs are not common. Farther north, they're way more common. But here, they're not that common. So that's why I tend to like love bogs, just talk about them with such passion and enthusiasm. But because bogs are not common, that's typically where you'll find the trees that aren't so common here in Pennsylvania. And so that would be tamarack, that would be black spruce, and that would be balsam fir. And it's easy to kind of determine where bogs are on a map because you look at these little like blue lines that signify it's a swampy area. And it could be a swamp, it could be a marsh, it could be a fen. There's all these different uh, specific features that determine which is which. But a bog, generally speaking, is a depression inland that has no inlet and it has no outlet. So it's not like water's flowing into it and then the water's there. there and then water's flowing out. It's basically a bowl where rainwater or snow comes down and the water just kind of stays saturated in there. And things take a very, very long time to break down in a bog. And so organisms, trees and plants that can survive in very hostile conditions, very low nutrient conditions, thrive in boggy areas. And so because I wanted to include a wide variety of trees in this course, I decided to include bog species as well, at least the ones that grow kind of close here, which would be black spruce and tamarack and balsam fir. But some of these places are so remote, there's no trails. I mean, when people think about getting into nature, like we go to a city park or community park or even a state park, a lot of people think about staying on that well-manicured path that'll take you from one point to another point and probably back and no big stories to tell, you know? Maybe you saw cool, cool birds, cool mushrooms, but you don't really get lost. But in some of these bogs, you know, no trails whatsoever. And some of this stuff can be pretty deep. Some of it's, you're just so exposed to the sun, so exposed to the elements, uh, exposed to animals that you don't encounter on a day-to-day basis. And it really can be a challenging experience. And so I decided to go out to a couple bogs for this course. And I had some pretty interesting experiences with some of them. I kicked up a black bear at one of these bogs eating blueberries and I knew it was gonna happen like in the peak of blueberry season. And not like this is a crazy experience. People see black bears quite often in certain areas of the country, but 
we don't see black bears on a day-to-day -day basis here near Pittsburgh. So that was a very cool experience to kick up a black bear and just see it take off and come nowhere near me. But in one bog in north central Pennsylvania, I got lost for not a long time. It was maybe 20 or 30 minutes. But it was one of the most humbling experiences and one of the most terrifying experiences and one of the best experiences once I got out that I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I'm not used to feeling that ever. It's just one of those things that when you're in a city or when you're in a suburb or when you're even in the outskirts in a rural area, it's very hard to get lost in these areas. But I didn't have any GPS on me. I didn't have a smartphone on me. So when you're out in the middle of nowhere, it's almost like all safety nets have been pulled from you. And you were just at the mercy of your wits, your intelligence, your intuition, and your footsteps that led you into that specific area. And so I was looking for balsam fir, maybe that's a story that you're alluding to, which is not a very common tree, but it's a conifer tree. It's a very beautiful tree. It's popular Christmas time. A very popular Christmas tree is balsam fir. And it smells absolutely incredible. When you come in contact with a balsam fir, nothing smells like it. But I went to this remote bog and I was looking for it. And I ended up in the middle of this wetland and just got kicked around. You know, you, you turn around and you're wondering, what direction did I actually come in? And then this, the sun wasn't out. It was a cloudy day. And so usually I do look at the sun in order to get in, to get out of places. But with each step that I took to get into the center of that area, I knew that with each step, I was increasing my risk of getting lost with every single step. Like every step was calculated, going in, going in, going in. How much farther can I go? And I just kept going a little further. And then, oh, I found cranberries. And so I get down and start <laughs> eating these cranberries. And then, oh, there's paper birch in the back there. And I needed to film paper birch. So I have this incredible zoom on my camera and I'm filming it. And then you realize, hmm, did I come in that way or did I come in that way? And it is so quiet so quiet, you don't hear a plane, you don't hear anything. And then I heard this weird noise, it's like boom, 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 And I thought, what the heck is that? And I kept hearing it over and over and over again. And I didn't figure out what it was, but I thought, I gotta get out of here before it gets too dark. And again, I just had to use my intuition to get out of there. And I wasn't seriously lost, but I had that feeling of, this could be actually a really bad experience for me. But at the same time, I wanted to put myself in that position because it, it just puts your life in perspective in that moment because you realize I'm alive in this moment. I'm not thinking about anything else right now, nothing. Bills that I owe, emails that I haven't gotten back to, what's the price of Bitcoin today? None of that stuff. It's just my safety's on the line right now. And I have people who love me that are waiting for me to come home. And so I better get out of here. And so I was very careful to walk slowly. And luckily, because I've spent so much time outside without GPS or without a smartphone, I was able to maneuver very skillfully back out there. And then once I got out, I saw a hunter. <laughs> there was a hunter there the whole time. And he was the nicest man. He was such a nice guy. His name was Bill Council. I'll never forget his name, Bill Council. <laughs> and he counseled me and he said, you should get a GPS. And he showed me the one that he uses. And he says he walks up here all the time, but he would never walk without one of those things. And so luckily I did have one at home that I hadn't used in years. And so now when I go, I do bring something with me, but I don't always turn it on. And when you're saying you were walking slowly, was that about your ability to just be maximally observant and really considerate of the direction that you were heading? 
Or are you also saying, I'm moving slowly so that I watch each step so that I don't compound this already risky, precarious situation with an injury with like some sort of additional error or mistake? I wish I could tell you that I think about those things, but I really don't. Okay. I don't think too much about trying to mitigate injury to my body when I'm in those situations because I think just by spending so much time outside over the past decade, I've kind of learned how to maneuver very skillfully outside and how to just be conscious and to be aware at all times. I was doing it because with each step, it was just a deeper thrill to go farther and farther and farther out with cloudy skies, not quite knowing in which direction you're heading, but knowing that you could get lost, but you probably won't because you're a smart kid and don't blow it this time. Because if you blow it this time, that could be the last chance you get to go out into an area like this. So when you started this career, like you said, 10, 10 years ago or so, you were coming from a background in nutrition. You were coming from a background of, I don't want to say conventional nutrition, but more conventional than where you've landed yourself. And that's part of the interest in, in mushrooms and their potentially nutritional benefits. How has the study of trees over the last two and a half years affected your diet? You're not making prescriptions for anyone else here, but just how has that changed your thinking as to what you choose to put in your body? The biggest way it's affected my diet is it has affected my mental diet. <laughs> and I think of that just the same way as I think of, you know, food diet or medicine diet, your mental diet. I mean, pretty much the only thing I've been putting in my brain over the past couple of years has been trees. But I know you probably mean food and you probably mean medicine as well. No, I think, I think it's a good answer, but keep going. Yeah, I mean, I answered it. It's just mentally, that's all I've been thinking about over the past couple of years is trees. And I think it's important for people to think about that as well. You know, when we think about diet, we do tend to think about food and medicine and what we put into our mouth. But I think it's just as important to focus on what you're putting into your brain as well. And so this has kept me very focused on something, especially in a time that's just been so crazy. When you think about what's going on in the media with everything, who's getting slapped, who's bombing who, what virus is spreading where, all these different things. It's so easy if you're focused on something else to just say, that's not important. Look, I'm somebody in Western Pennsylvania. I really can't control what's going on. I can think about it. I can sympathize. I can donate money. I can do a lot of that stuff. But really, does a Facebook post about that really change anything? If I change my profile picture with a little circle that says something, supporting one thing or supporting something else, is that really going to change much? Or should I just focus on what I'm meant to be doing? And the answer for me was just focus on what you're meant to be doing. And so maybe I'm kind of naive when it comes to like worldly affairs and a lot of that stuff, but I know a lot about trees and I'm super excited about that. But I've been eating a lot of wild stuff from trees and I've been making medicine out of things from trees, specifically a lot of meads. So I make an alcoholic beverage called mead and it's basically like a wine, but instead of using grapes and sugar, you're using honey as your sugar of choice to ferment. But rather than just fermenting honey and drinking a mead that way, I'm foraging different things from trees and putting it in there. So I make a killer root beer mead. So it's like a traditional root beer that has black birch in it and sassafras and sarsaparilla. It's just like Bark's root beer that we had, hopefully as kids. I don't know if you still drink that stuff, but I haven't had it for a long time. Back in the day. Yeah. But there's just a lot of things you can forage from trees as well. Um, and so that's been huge as well in my life to learn new things and to incorporate them into my diet. Word. 
On the topic of diet, I'm a big fruit guy. I've conventionally eaten the fruits that were brought from some remote island, some tropical climate. You've introduced me to the concept of a fruit-bearing tree that is native to North America, the pawpaw. Can you tell people about that? Pawpaw is a tree that supposedly produces, and I'm going to say one of, not the, but one of America's largest edible fruits. It might be the largest fruit, but I haven't seen every fruit, so it's not coming from firsthand experience, but it's a pretty large fruit that kind of looks like a mango. It's greenish, it's soft, and it tastes like a mix of banana and mango. So it's like very custardy with these large seeds inside. And it's native to Eastern North America. It grows from Southern Ontario through Pennsylvania, all the way down to Florida, west of Texas, and then back up. And it's not that uncommon. And it typically grows in very fertile areas, bottomland sites, usually alongside streams. And it's not very big. It's a smaller tree, kind of shrubby, tends to throw up suckers. And this was a fruit that was commonly eaten by people who lived in North America prior to European settlement. And... Today, a lot of foragers still eat this food, but you'll hardly ever see it being sold. Like if you go to Shop and Save or Giant Eagle or even Whole Foods or a local co-op, maybe co-ops would sell it, I'm not sure. But I've personally never seen it being sold in like a conventional grocery store. You might see it at farmer's markets. And that's because it doesn't store very well. It doesn't ship very well. And it doesn't look that nice whenever you forage it and it starts to ripen a bit. It kind of looks bruised. It almost looks like it would be like a bruised banana or something. Like who would really buy a lot of bruised bananas? You want the ones that are nice and yellow. And so with the pawpaw, unfortunately, it's so tasty and it's such a great species to plant for many reasons. It's probably not going to be adopted by consumers on a mass scale, which might not be a bad thing. You know, it's kind of like it requires that you know something about the tree in order to experience the tree. It's like an indie fruit. Yeah, it is. And it's only gaining more popularity over the years. Like this, this plant was commonly eaten uh, in fruit form and it can be made into a medicinal extract as well. There's uh, some anti-cancer research on extracts from the plant as well. But traditionally the fruit was eaten and George Washington planted uh, pawpaw trees at his home in Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson planted pawpaws at his home in Monticello in Virginia. And Nowadays, I mean, if you walk through the city, you'll see some pawpaw trees being planted. And I think you have some pawpaws planted in your backyard as well. It might take a couple years in order for it to set fruit. But it's a great tree for somebody to plant because it's not that big. And it doesn't take that long in order to reach maturity. Meaning if you plant it, it's only a matter of time, maybe five, six, seven years before it sets fruit. And it's largely deer resistant as well. That's super important for Western PA. Yeah, I mean, so many deer. It's hard to plant a lot of things and to get them going without deer munching on them. But pawpaws are pretty safe in that respect. Gotcha. So tree course is nearly out by the time this is going live or has, has gone out. Um, you've had these two very distinct chapters, the, the mushroom chapter culminating in the mushroom course, the tree chapter culminating in this tree course. What is on the horizon for Learn Your Land, Adam Harriton, your Where do you feel yourself being drawn? That's a good question because I think about that a lot. And I don't have a definitive answer. I kind of feel like I'm just throwing myself out there after this and seeing what comes my way. And it's not a very comforting feeling because we always like to know what's going to happen next. And honestly, I don't know what's going to happen next. 
I've known for a long time what that next step was, but I feel like after this, I will continue to obviously put content out online and continue to film these videos. But I have been getting more and more into raising money and giving it to land conservation trusts in order that these lands are protected so that people can actually go out and enjoy wild spaces. And I think the act of donating money is something that a lot of people don't talk about. I guess inherently they know the benefits of donating money to a land trust, but whenever we think of like land conservation, especially now, people do a lot of great things like pick up trash and pull invasive plants and plant native plants and plant trees. But you can also donate a lot of money and a lot of these organizations actually need the money in order to buy the land. It's like whenever a plot of land is going up for sale, a developer doesn't care about your intentions to plant trees there. It doesn't care that you're going to pick up its trash. It doesn't care that you're going to plant native plants and pull all the invasives. It cares that you have more money than the developer. And if you have more money, it's yours. That's where we are today in the 21st century. And so I think that one thing that I am actually drawn to is raising money and giving it to these land conservation trusts so that they have funds in order to buy this property and telling people that this is what they can do. You know, in all my videos in the notes section, I have, in order to support this work, donate to your local land conservation trust. I don't ask for donations yet. I just ask people to donate to their local conservation trusts. And when I do uh, open enrollment to these online courses, a portion of all proceeds goes to land conservation trusts specifically for land conservation and not necessarily for like pizza parties and stuff like that. And so are they, when, when a donation, I don't know much about these land conservation trusts, are, is the money that's going to them basically going into some sort of uh, account and then that account is being deployed against the land that is immediately adjacent to the already preserved lands? Like how does that work? It all depends on the situation. I mean, with some land conservation trusts, they don't specify where the money's going. With some, they do. And so I really like an organization here in Western Pennsylvania called Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Great organization. A lot of our state parks actually were originally purchased by the Western Pen Pennsylvania Conservancy and then given or bought by the state to be held in perpetuity by the state government. You can specify that the money goes to land conservation. Now, specifically what they do with it, I guess you won't know unless you ask them, but they can do a number of things with it. They can purchase property that's adjacent to a forest that's already protected. They can buy a property that was going to go to development. They can do many other things with it. I mean, they can use that money for tree planting. They can use that money to host walks and events and raise awareness and host fundraisers and all these different things. But I specifically like the money going directly to the purchase of lands. And again, it all depends on the specific situation, whether they're buying completely new property, whether they're buying it off of somebody who said, I can give you this money at a discount, or buying adjacent property to a designated forest or like a state park. So it sounds like having a why like this that can underpin the work that was already resonant to you. You know, your, your starting point was, I, Adam, need to know more about this for my own education, for my own healing, for my own nutrition, for my own kind of connection to where I'm from. And, oh, teaching other people what I've learned is this fantastic way to, you know, sustain myself basically while I, you know, basically get paid to learn. But what it sounds like is this leaf is turning over where, yes, getting paid to learn these things, which is effectively what we've done. You, you've done hours and hours and hours of learning about trees so that other people will pay you for the distilled, condensed version of that. But adding in 
the ability to route the money created from that towards these causes that you care about, just give it greater depth, greater heft. Is that a fair synopsis? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've been given so much, like I've been given the idea to do a project like the tree course. And I consider it to be a gift. Like I don't take that for granted that I knew what to do with my life for almost three years. Like that's huge to me rather than just float around, you know, put a video up here, put a video up there, lead a walk here, lead a walk there. I think that's all great stuff. But I was also given this inspiration to do a tree course and to do a mushroom course. And so one of the ways of giving thanks for that gift that I received is giving back. And there are many ways that people can give back. And I think money is a great way to give back today. What about the meta skill of stepping out into that uncertainty? So on one side, it's walking into a bog when you don't have a GPS and you don't know where you are and you don't have a lot of context. On the other side, it is leaving your job to start this, not really knowing what the business would be, then spending years on a mushroom course, not sure if it would sell, then instead of following up on a mushroom course with another mushroom course, going to this adjacency, which is trees. All of these have been, from a career trajectory standpoint, progressively maybe you wouldn't necessarily qualify them as more intense, but intense steps into further uncertainty. Can you just talk about doing that repeatedly over the course of a career and how you, how you get better at that or maybe you don't get better at it? I don't think I'm getting better at it <laughs> because it seemed like it was a lot easier in the beginning. It just seemed like it was so much easier, maybe because I knew exactly what the next three years would be, what the next five years would be. But honestly, like I can say this very genuinely, once this tree course is done, and look, I'm gonna continue to work on it for probably another year, but not as much work as I put it in the, for the first two and a half years because I wanted to get the bulk of it out there. But there's a couple of things that I wanna capture over the next year or two. But I'm not quite sure. And it's not a very comforting feeling. Like I have times where I feel very unsettled and kinda anxious about what's next because I think the whole draw with business and especially online business and especially with content creation is you have to keep going. Like you have to keep putting stuff out or you will become irrelevant fast because somebody else is working hard and they're going to beat you. And I learned something over the winter of this year because I stopped posting on YouTube for months. I've never done that ever since I started back in 2015 at least a video per month, usually two per month, sometimes three per month. I had zero time because I was working so heavily in this editing process, January through March into April. I had zero time to put any kind of free content out online until April when I did put a brand new video out. It was very difficult for me to make that decision that it's okay to take a step back from all that. I thought, what if I become irrelevant? What if the algorithm just doesn't support me in this whatsoever? What if I lose fans? What if I come back with this tree project and there's nobody to buy? It's just crickets. Deep down, I thought it's probably not gonna happen, but I also made peace with the fact that, look, if that's gonna happen, so be it. I worked so hard on this project, I knew that this is what I needed to do. And I knew that I needed to sacrifice a lot of things. And that was one thing that needed to be sacrificed was that constant content creation online. And because I just knew that I had to be doing this, no matter what happened, I was going to accept it because I had no doubts in my mind that that's what I needed to be doing. 
And so over the next couple of months, over the next year after this, I think I'm going to have to re-enter that state of just trying to make peace with not consistently pushing out a certain thing day after day after day after day, which is what I kind of been doing over the past couple of years and trying to figure out what the next big step is going to be. You know, I've been focusing more and more on bigger stuff. The tree course is a good example of that. Clearly, that's not a TikTok video. It's not a YouTube video. It's not even like a series of videos. These are 80 videos that are coming out, 80 brand spanking new videos that nobody has ever seen before. It's kind of different from what most people are doing these days. Everything's becoming shorter. Everything's becoming just put out something real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick. And I thought, look, if you want to make something that's grand and great, it's going to take time. And you're going to have to take a step back from all of that. You know, I think of things like I was raised on music before nutrition, before nature. It was always music. And the best artists in my life, the ones that I looked up to, they put out an album once a year, once every two years, once every three years, and then you heard nothing from them. Clearly, they would go on tour, but without the internet, you really didn't know what was going on because they were working on stuff. And then a brand new album would come out, and you'd be like, wow, this is so good. And so I think I'm programmed to kind of create content in that way, like treat it like the musicians did in the 80s and the 90s, where it's like you put out something big, and then you wait a while. And then you put out something big, and then you wait a while. And I'm not so much into the put out something small, little by little, here, over there, now, right now, tomorrow, put out something else. I understand that works for a lot of people, but looking at my trajectory, I've been doing the opposite. And it wasn't always a conscious decision. I think it's just I'm programmed to do that. And we've also talked in the past about the idea that that perpetual motion, without candidly just being being okay with the calm, is also this kind of distraction. So if you have something that is, you know, scaring you or bothering you or causing anxiety in the back of your head, well, if I just throw myself into a project and I never come up for air and I never step back from it, then I don't really have to address that. I can just kind of like keep pushing that in the back background. And, you know, that's why many people, many people will use that as an excuse to distract themselves. And then also, oh, it's also like effectively helping me accomplish my goal. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing with content creation and I'm speaking based on experience, it's addicting, you know? It's like, it's addicting to put this stuff out and see how people respond to it. Like, it feels good. Even when you get, like, the nastiest comments, you're still, like, addicted to checking them. And so to, like, take a step back from that is basically to stop drinking coffee for a while. It's like, oh, but the side effects, you know? What am I going to do? It's like, it hurts. But then it's okay after a while. And then when you re-enter it, you kind of have a new perspective on things. And so I'm content having chosen that path over the past couple of months. But I'm not quite sure what's going to happen over the next couple of years. I imagine I'm going to continue to go deeper with all of this stuff and continue to donate money and continue to preach the good news of learning trees and learning plants and learning mushrooms. But in what form that takes, I'm not quite sure. Another thing that's interesting to me about you is, you know, you, you alluded to not being um, addicted to the feed and how, you know, being conscientious of what you consume allows you to kind of block some certain stuff out and, and you know, have a little bit of sanity or peace of mind because you're, you're focused on something that's right in front of you. It also puts you in a different posture where there's certain characters who you could say are trend riders. And there's like a thousand different permutations of this, particularly in digital age. 
in, in a certain circle of like tech, they call it like whatever the thing is. Like I care about the thing. And you alluded to like it, the slap, the war, the, you know, that's the thing that everyone is, is hyped up about. But you have these other folks and music's a great example where they were down like in the dirt, in the clubs, seeing the bands before they came up and identifying, oh, it's them. They're the next thing that's on the upshoot. So it sounds like you also, to some degree, have made the conscientious trade-off of, I'm not going to try and keep the finger on the pulse, seed the advantage of potentially hopping on a trend early or riding that trend early, and instead, in exchange for trading off that advantage, get the advantage over here of having uh, a specific type of work that might not be for everyone, might be niche, it might not be on trend, but is differentiated from my competition, not being commoditized effectively. Yeah, you said it very well. I do think about that. Clearly, I, I notice what works. And clearly, I try to put some of that in my content or else nobody would watch any of my stuff. It's not like my YouTube videos say redoak.mov. You know, like the early titles from like 2005 when people uploaded their videos and never yeah. changed the titles. Clearly, I put some of the marketing, you know, jazz into my titles and I try to make it upbeat and I keep it at a relatively short length and all that stuff. But you're right. I'm not that interested in following some of the major trends today. And I guess I was never like that as a person anyway. But it's not even like it's a super conscious decision to do or to don't do that. I'm just pulled by this force inside of me that guides me towards doing this and doing that and doing this thing and focusing on what's really important. Like I said earlier in our conversation, I'm not quite sure that I'm the one that decided to do the tree identification course. It's almost like it was a gift that was given to me. You can do this course. And I accept it. And I said, yes. And because long time ago, I learned to stay true to my word. Whenever I say yes to something, I mean it. I'm going to do it. And there's nothing, barring some extreme tragedy or something, that could prevent me from doing this thing that I've been granted if I say yes. And so I said yes to this tree course. And when I did, all these things started shifting in my life. Decisions that were kind of hard to say yes to or no to instantly became yes or no. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Things became very, very clear as long as I said no to a lot of distractions. And the distractions, a lot of them were easy to say no to. But the bigger picture is I'm not necessarily watching what other people are doing and seeing yeah, that works. I'll incorporate a little bit of that. That doesn't work. I'm not going to do it. I don't really want to do that. It's more like I've got this thing I got to do. It's as important as breathing. It's as important as eating. It's as important as saying I love you to people. Like I have to do it. And it has to come out of me no matter what. And the way I was raised, the influences early on, I think that's how it comes out into the world. You know, I was a very creative person growing up. It was all music and it was production. It was an intro, it was the verse, it was the chorus, it was the outro. Themes were very important, like albums and things. And so when I put out content, it's like a song to me. Like it really is. There's an introduction, there's like a middle part to it, and then there's an outro, and there's music in it. And I carefully choose a lot of the music that goes into it. So those are the influences that guide me on a very superficial level, I think, that you see when people watch my videos. But deep down, I think it's just a stronger force that's guiding me and telling me what to do and what not to do. 
so you've alluded to this a couple times. I'd like to try and unpack it a little bit more. You're saying this felt like a gift that was given to you. Some people call it the little voice inside their head. Some people think it's a higher power that they're speaking to. Whatever works for them. There is a degree to which one is closed or open to hearing that. And I, I want to, there's a really important delineation here. Hearing it versus not even hearing it and then acting on it versus not acting on it. Can you talk about your own maturation development in being able to do both of those things? And you can take them one at a time if you want to. You're right. Hearing and actually acting on it are completely different. When I heard the call to do the course, I thought, that's interesting. I thought, that's a great proposition to do something like that. It took me a little while to finally commit to it. But it's almost like it was presented to me. And then now what are you going to do with it? Are you going to do it or you're not going to do it? No ifs, ands, buts about it. You're not going to like, I'll say half-ass on here, right? I can say half-ass. You're not going to half-ass your way with this project. If you say yes, you're going to do it and you're going to do it better than anybody. And to kind of like go off on a tangent a little bit, a common comment people will uh, tell me or write to me or ask me is, aren't you worried that somebody else is working on this? Like if you share that you're doing something like this, aren't you worried that somebody else is going to beat you to it? And I thought, look, two days ago, like literally two days ago, I was in the car for eight hours. I drove 500 miles. I spent 60 bucks on gas. I had embedded tick in my leg when I came home all to capture 20 seconds of footage for the course, 20 seconds. No, I'm not worried that somebody's going to beat me or someone's going to provide a better content than this course because I, I've never met anybody that's so into a project like this, trees specifically, other projects for sure. But right now at this point in time, putting it out in an online course format. So I'm not worried at all because I take these calls extremely seriously, very, very seriously. Were you always able to hear calls like this? No, when was the first no. when was the first time what was that when did you realize that you were being called to something? Transitioning from music to nutrition. Okay. Which wasn't that long ago. I guess it depends on your time scale, but thirteen, fourteen years ago. In that instance was to use a lack of a better metaphor, did the bell have to ring a couple times for you to hear it? Because it's what it sounds like is when you said you were called to this there's this presentation, you see it. Okay, let me noodle on that a little bit. But it was unambiguous that you saw the manifestation of this idea. Was that the same? Or have you done work to open yourself so that it's presented to you and you collect it? Definitely the latter. I mean, one of the big things that's allowed me to hear the calls is removing distractions. And look, I know we joke about the flip phone, but... That's one thing that prevents me from being distracted because I can't really be distracted when I'm away from home. Like I spend time in nature and I don't have access to that thing. I know a lot of good comes from it. Like I wouldn't be getting lost in bogs if I had something like that. I wouldn't have to plan out three days of traveling beforehand because I could just, you know, on a whim go here because I got this phone. But I see how distracting it is for a lot of people. And I think that's one of the things, you know, when... 13 years ago was kind of when people started switching to smartphones from flip phones. But I just became so 
awe-inspired by this call to focus on nutrition and stop music for a little bit, but maybe not forever, maybe you can come back to it, but to focus on this thing that I just thought, I don't want anything to change right now. I'm listening to this thing, I'm accepting it, I want it so bad, it feels so good, I don't want anything to change. And I thought, you know, if I pull in this new technology, something's gonna change. And because I've been so focused on this passion for 13 or 14 years, I just don't feel like I've had time to look into smartphones and see what the big deal is. Clearly I have a computer, clearly I run an online business, and so I know the value of doing things online. But it's just one distraction that I don't think I need. That was also around the time when I stopped watching TV, started going to libraries, but I started spending a lot of time in nature. And look, I, I know it sounds crazy to say, but I think there are forces that are trying to like beat you over the head and tell you, here's what you can be doing. If you wanna do it, say yes. If you don't, say no, but you have to make a decision. But you have to hear those things. And if you're being distracted, you're never gonna hear them. And so how can you remove these distractions? Because there's just so much vying for attention today. If you just think about 50 years ago, 100, 150, 200 years ago, much less things vying for attention. If you go back a long time ago, thousands of years, clearly very few things vying for attention. That's not to say there's no benefit living in the 21st century. Like, I like a lot of things. I like driving. I like medicine if I need it. I like heat in the winter. I like air conditioning in the summertime. But I try to remove distractions as much as possible. And I think that's absolutely essential. I don't really meditate a lot. I mean, I spend a lot of time by myself out in nature. You can consider that meditation, but that's one of the ways I think people try to get there through something like that. But just remove distractions in your life. And I think you'd be surprised at what comes your way. And then the, the choice to act, like you were saying, you, you know, it's real, I'm really comfortable here. I don't really want to change. People struggle with change all the time. But what I've found is that there's a momentum effect, both positive and negative, to making changes, making meaningful reroutes in a career. And it's almost like the vessel that you use as the metaphor for what you're doing. If you imagine yourself to be a motorboat chugging your way through turbulent waters, then your whole model is, I just keep going forward. Even if the biggest tidal wave is, is pushing me in the opposite direction, if that's the metaphor that you're working with as you conceive of what you're doing, you, you don't really have it. There's not a different thing that the motorboat does. But if you were to foresee yourself as, you know, a monkey swinging from vine to vine, that's like, okay, I mean, this vine is literally only going to take me so far. This it literally can't go any further. So I better be open to where the next vine is that I can go take a grab onto so that I can continue to progress if that's the goal that you're after. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, I feel blessed. I, I don't know how else to say it. I feel blessed that I know what to do. It's an incredible gift, but I'm conscious that it's a gift. And I think the best gifts are meant to be given back, not directly to the giver of the gift, but given back in some way. And it sounds so counter to what we're used to with like consumer goods, right? Like you give someone a gift, keep it. Like if you love it, you'll keep it, right? But I think the best gifts are those that are meant to be given back. And I think this is why I like libraries so much because you can't keep anything. You have to give it back and let somebody else benefit from that book or from that DVD or from that CD. But with this course, it's like I've been given the idea to do something like this or learn your land. I have to transform it some way, provide some alchemy, not just give it back as is. I'm not telling people, create your own tree course. I'm doing some magic with it 
and I'm passing it forward. And I think if anybody listening to this can relate, if you've been given a gift, you have to give it back in some way. Like you can't hold it in or you'll just explode inside. Like there's, there's no way to contain that kind of energy. Amen to that. We don't need to end with a challenge. We don't need to end with anything other than that. You're the man. We just went deep with Adam Herod and hope it there is a fantastic day. Hey, thank you for listening to the end of our conversation with Adam. Go check out the tree course. Go check out everything that he is up to. His YouTube channel is stupendous. And while you're over on YouTube, check out the two talks that he has given, one at Piper Creative's home office and once at our event, the Going Deep Summit. Also hit subscribe because we have some really exciting additional conversations coming soon on this feed. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.